Well, I'm back for part two of episode 14. And listeners, are you in for a treat right now? Well, I shift from revenue and profit to people and the amazing story of the personal triumph of the CEO of Bronx Parent Housing Network, Victor Rivera. Victor, thank you so much for joining us today to tell us your remarkable journey from what many would describe as a hopeless start to where you stand today as the CEO of Bronx Parent Housing Network and your mission to eliminate homelessness and hopelessness. Welcome, Victor. Wow, it is really a pleasure and an honor to be sitting here with you, Bill, at this enormous point of my life in this journey. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine, Victor, really it is. And where do you want to start? Why don't we go back to the beginning and tell our listeners where it is that you were and that journey from there to where you stand now. You know, Bill, most people would hear this, right, and would think that the the end of the horrific journey um, would have been maybe 25, 30 years old, and that that's when the beginning of the new life began. But unfortunately, it's not true. The beginning started in 1965 at just the tender age of five years old. Um, as hard as it may be for people to believe that a young boy of five years old can be introduced to any kind of illegal narcotics or drugs that just happened to unfortunately be part of my lifestyle and my journey at that time. And I believe that the reason why that was, was mainly because of the environment that I came from. That's what it, you know, it was the 60s. There was a lot of marijuana. There was a lot of weed. There was just a lot going on. But more, even more impacting was the community when I was raised from. I'm from 138th Street and Brook Avenue. As many people know that in the 60s and 70s, 138th Street and Brook Avenue, the heart of the South Bronx was probably the most inundated drug den in the country. Isn't that where the movie Fort Apache was based? Um, no, Fort Apache was more on Simpson. Um, 138th Street and Brook Avenue was a close. Is it? They were like tied to to the lifestyle, both of 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 Fort Apache and 138th Street. Fort Apache was closer to the 41st precinct, and 138th Street and Brook Avenue was on the 40th precinct. So the precincts were very close, and communities were very similar in nature. Even though I had my experience later on at a very also still a tender age, you know, at Fort Apache. But the the South Bronx is a pretty wide catchment area of what we call the South Bronx. And I think a lot of it was called the South Bronx mainly because of the drug activity that happened in certain communities in the Bronx. So tell us you're at the tender age of five years old. All this is going on around you. Describe that a little bit to me. So, you know, it's funny, right? Because when I was... Five years old, six years old, growing up, um, even in my household, right? Um, a lot of my cousins, um, they would be in the room and they would be smoking weed. So it would be all dark and all you would see was this little orange light lit up, right? So I'm like, what is that? And they're like, get out of the room, get out of the room. So, but I'm watching them what they're doing. So one day I get up in the morning, I go to my cousin's drawer, I open the drawer and I see a bunch of baggies, plastic bags in a row in a row where now what i know what they were were half an ounces and ounces of weed of marijuana what they call it today so i grab i grab a bag and i used to see these little books that they used to use that they used to call them bamboo at the time which was rolling paper now they use you know tobacco and they use um blunts so i grab a pack of bamboo i pack i grab a pack of weed i put it in my pocket and i go to school kindergarten 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 so at lunch hour i grab like three or four of my friends because i don't want to go by myself and i grab them and i go to people's park and people from this neighborhood or from this community or from the bronx would know when you say people's park that was one of the most dangerous parks in the nation this is 1965 this is 1965 1965 and i'm five years old so it was right i was at ps 30 so i i grabbed the weed and i go to the park and i start putting some weed in a piece of paper and it's all messed up, but I'm rolling it. And like three or four of my friends. So I smoked my very first joint at the age of five. Wow. So you're, so, so what happens to you at that age at five years old, which 
is inconceivable to me is just a product of the environment that you were in. You, you know, Bill, like it didn't even seem it didn't even seem like there was anything wrong with it. It was just something to do. You know, Bill, and and, and yes, I would say yes. Although you know, in the community, and there was a lot of, and I don't want to, I don't want my listeners to, I don't want your listeners to get it misconstrued. There was a lot of love and a lot of you know family orientation in that community, but. For the majority, you know, my mother um, was from Puerto Rico. She came to New York, spoke no English. Um, you know, we lived in a very poor neighborhood and didn't really know the fiber of New York City, right? Um, didn't understand that kids had to be watched. And not only that, but, all, and, I, and I shared with this a little earlier with you, all my idols, everyone that I seen, everyone that I looked up to was a drug dealer. Right. At five, six years old, I'm going to school. Right. The guy with the nicest car, the guy with the best clothes was the drug dealer. It wasn't a lawyer. It wasn't a doctor. I didn't see that. I didn't have those those examples in my life as a young boy. So the examples that you had really kind of drove some of the choices that you thought you had. Absolutely. And, And not only that. You know, you would see the poverty, right? My mother was a single woman. We had, she, there were six boys. And, you know, growing up, the only people that you seen that had anything good, any, I, I used to wear what we call, I remember skippies. They were like, you know, $5.99. They were like from the Jew man store. Those were expensive sneakers at the time. Anybody who had converts that were $9.99 were all drug dealers or their children. Wow. Wow. So, so you had this, uh, experimentation with marijuana in public school and people's park at five years old. What happens after that? You know, after that, you know, like I, I, I'm not going to say that, I, that the drug addiction um, took off from there because it wasn't right. You know, mom was still mom. Right. And at five years old, right. Like I tried it once and then, you know, I seen, I would see the next thing that I tried, right. Was something called Cabona and something called glue which was real simple, right? It was, you will go to the 99 cent store, you will buy a model airplane, you take a paper bag and you squeeze the whole tube of glue inside the bag and you start breathing it in and out. Sniffing glue. Yeah, I remember uh, I remember hearing about that. I mean, yeah. that, that actually can be extremely dangerous physically and I, psychologically. And I believe that it did have a both physical and psychological um, effect on me. Um, I learned very slow, um, and I'll share with you later on, you know, the difficulties that I had in school, um, and I'm really grateful to God. And, you know, I want to tell you, Bill, that, and I don't want to skip ahead, but God has been a very, very intricate part of the recovery that came later on. But, you know, I've, I've, between five and nine years old, right, I seen all this drug dealing. I started selling drugs, Bill, at the age of nine. Wow. At the age of what nine. What were you selling at the age of nine? Believe it or not, Bill, we was, I was selling methadone biscuits. So anybody, right, that is hearing this, unless you are an old timer, right, you don't need, people don't even know what that is no more. A methadone biscuit in the in the late in the middle sixties, right, was this orange tab that had four slices, and people would cut them in hat in four pieces and sell them to the to the junkies, right, to the heroin users. And what it what it was, right, at nine years old, because and let me say this very quickly, my mother worked all her life, right, till she got ill. So my mother used to work from six in the morning to eight o'clock at night. She took two breaks at eight o'clock to send us to school. And at three o'clock to pick us up from school. What what did she do? My mother was a cook. She worked at a restaurant. And what's funny was, right, my mother would pick me up and take me to school at eight and bring me to the front of the door. And eight thirty, I used to walk out the back of the door, right? At three o'clock, she would come and get me. We would go, all the brothers would go upstairs. She would take us upstairs, lock the door, and whenever she locked the door, I would run out the fire skate and go downstairs, right? And go and we used I used to sell methadone biscuits in this grocery store. So the man used to all the business was in the back. So everything that I sold out of the store, I used to keep. So here goes. An eight, nine-year-old boy in the 60s with $200, $300 a day in his pocket. 
from whatever I sold in the grocery store. And my mother would tell me, where did you get that money? I said, Mom, I was packing groceries. And she says, my God, you packed a lot of groceries. So the innocent of my mother, my mother nev- my mother's worst habit bill was Winston and Bustelo. For those who don't know, understand that that's a cigarette and coffee. I love Bustelo. That's <laughs> my favorite coffee. <laughs> Matter of fact, when I when I looked at your Keurig machine here at the office and I saw you at Bustelo, I was very, very excited. It's the best coffee. <laughs> So, you know, it's funny how people would say, well, where's, where were the parents um, of this five-year-old, seven-year-old, nine-year-old child? Um, well, when you're from an island um, of Puerto Rico in the days how my mother was raised and you come to this country, you come to work and you think that society is the way you were raised up in the country where, you know, kids go outside to play and they play in, in in the ground and in the beach and you don't see marijuana sold by a five-year-old you don't have nine-year-old boys selling methadone biscuits you, you just it just doesn't happen not not where my mother came from um but it did here you know and and as and as sad as that may be right this is still probably the most beautiful country in the world and and later on you you'll know why I say that but, you know, at, at nine years old, you know, my mother was so naive to think that I could have two or $300 a day in my pocket. And then it went, Bill, from, from me wearing Skippies of five ninety nine to wearing Playboys, Shawskins, and Alpacas. Um, a nine-year-old boy going to at the store. At that time, it was the Jew man on 174th Street and 3rd Avenue. He was the one that had all the drug dealers, you know, clothing. And people said, what is, you know, how did Victor start dressing like this? So everybody seen that I was coming out of Benji's store and Benji was the local large drug dealer at the time. And most of these people, and, and I might change some of the names, Bill, just, you know, to protect people. I, I want to be honest about that as well. Um, my name is, is public information and I don't have a problem sharing that. But, you know, it's just after there are people that I will protect and change the name. Right. So all these names that you're giving are not the actual names. No, none except for my own. Right. Okay. My own. I don't have a problem with, you know, I am a public figure and my life is story is already on YouTube and at Columbia University. So I don't have a problem sharing my, my name correctly. So now you're nine years old. At this point, have you ventured outside of the Bronx at all? I mean, have you gone into Manhattan? Have you gone into Queens? Have you gone into Brooklyn? Have you been out to Long Island? Have you been to the beach? Have you been upstate New York? Or is your life really centered around being in that little enclave that you grew up in in the Bronx? Bill, you're 100% correct. Still, at that point, right, is a 10-block radius of a world. And that's that's all you know at this point. That's what you know. At that point, yes, that's all I know, Bill. Right. And, you know, and whatever you see there, that's your reality. You know, that was my reality, you know, selling drugs, you know. Um, I, I wasn't using drugs at the time. You know, I became uh, uh, a really, uh, what a drug dealer is, someone who just doesn't use the drugs, but, you know, sells it. Um, having a girlfriend at nine years old that was a 15-year-old, 15-year-old girlfriend, you know, all my life, always being involved with women older than me is one of the tragedies uh, of of a life of that I led. You know, who really you don't you grow so fast, Bill. I didn't ever have a childhood. I didn't know what it was to play stickball. I didn't know what it was to have a childhood because um, all I seen was death, drug dealing, um, and, and a lot of tragedy. Because in that time, there was a lot of killing also. So. What what were some of the things that you were witnessing as a nine-year-old? I would constantly see people OD in the hallways. And by ODs, I mean overdose with people with spikes and needles in their arms, ODing, you know, in the block. In the, in the block. I used to live on, at that point, we were on Bathgate and 174th Street. I used to live at 1713 Bathgate Avenue. Uh, you know, the building next door was a, a known drug den, you know, in the grocery store where I used to sell the drugs that were around the corner on 174th Street between Bathgate and 3rd Avenue. And um, there was a lot of death and a lot of shooting, but more overdose of heroin than shooting at that time. And these people would perish. They would die. 
absolutely. One, if, you know, I, I've, I, as a nine-year-old boy, could tell you that I found at least four or five people overdose inside that drug spot on Bathgate on on hundred and seventy. And so, Street. what would happen at that point? I, it, it, it didn't phase me. You would just walk past it. I just walked past them. And and so, when would someone come and? When sometimes you know when they would take the bodies of the dead people and put them outside. Right, because they were OD in what is called a drug den, right, and you can't have the police go in there and, and take out a body, right, because then you can't sell drugs out of there no more. So they would take the bodies and they would put them in the backyard or put them downstairs. In- so the other dealers uh, would actually take these perished people and put them outside, Absolutely. so that they, so that the police wouldn't be coming in and seeing what's going on. Absolutely, there. and the police knew this. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, were all the buildings occupied? Were there vacant buildings? Were there people that were squatting in vacant buildings, you know, creating drug dens? Well, I, I, you know, at that point, Bill, there, there was a lot of abandoned buildings, but not so much. The, 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 most of the decay of the abandoned buildings came in like the early 70s, you know, late 70s. That's when the, the Bronx became a burn out community where people and and i know this for a fact well and maybe i where people were burning buildings i'm not going to say landlords but people weren't burning buildings because they didn't have any value to the building because the community nobody was paying rent everybody was squatting nobody was paying rent so a lot of the buildings i believe um because i was young at that time so i can't say for sure i believe that people were burning the buildings because they wanted the insurance and they couldn't value out of it this this sounds um uh, so incredible to me. I mean, you you know, you hear it, but to hear it from someone like yourself that actually lived it, experienced it, this was your world. It's um, it's pretty incredible, and and you know, I I want the listeners to understand that the reason that I'm here with you and that you're here with me is because we want people to understand this story at a very very deep level not because they're hearing it from someone who's telling them a story about something they observed, but from someone who actually lived it. It was your reality, as you said before. And and then what we're going to get to later, of course, is this transformation that you went through. I, I know there are some other difficult chapters between what we've already discussed and where you come to this transformation uh, and I'm I'm certainly excited about sharing that with everybody. So let's let's keep going on. What's the next cha- chapter now? So you know, so like at nine years old, you know, um, I, and I tell you, Bill, this was probably a very impactful time in my life. At nine years old, the building where I used to live in, seventeen thirteen Taylor, um, became condemned, and my mother had to move into a shelter. And I believe that we were maybe the second or the third family to move into the famous um, Grand Concourse Plaza Hotel. It was one of the shelters that had converted from a hotel on Grand Concourse and 161st Street. Um, It became a hotel. And we were one of the first families to move into that shelter. Um, And there I lived there for about a year or two. Um, And what was that like? Uh, What was the environment there? Scary. Why was it scary? Like, what are some of the things that, I mean, because what you've already told me you went through sounds scary to me. So now that you would move into this shelter that used to be a hotel, like what, what, well, what is scary about that? Well, we're not talking about, you know, the, the Astoria or, or, or the Marriott or the Hall. you know, the Hall. we're talking about a shelter, you know, um, very dark, you know, there was prostitution in that hotel, um, nothing of an environment where a child should be raised. And we were there for about two years um, before my mother took us out and moved us um, into a building. And then we moved to Castle Hill. Um, and that's where the drug dealing, you know, really took off. Because now I'm 12, 13 years old. I'm in high school. And um, really got introduced to a lot harder drugs as far as consuming. And this is the early 70s at this point. Very early 70s, 73, 74. I actually met the mother of my children in 1974. Um, And here you're talking- At 14. At 14, Bill. I met and started dating a 22-year-old woman. And why was a 14-year-old boy- able to date a 22-year-old woman because at 14, 
I already had a car, um, was already selling drugs at a very high level. So you were driving a car? Yes. At 14? At 14. Before you were eligible to have a learner's <laughs> permit? <laughs> Yeah, you know, that and, life... And what, did you, would you get pulled over? No. Uh, you know, Bill, first of all, a lot of times, you know, I had drivers driving for me, but, I, you know, I owned a couple of cars. Um, you know, Bill, that lifestyle, um, and the last thing I want to do, Bill, um, both as a Christian and as someone who, who did substance abuse counseling for many, many years of my career, um, I will never glamorize that lifestyle. Um, but at that time, that's all I knew. It was my survival skills. It allowed me to feed my family. Um, I remember at, 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 and even, and I forgot to say this, Bill, at nine and 10 years old, right? Um, my mother had, had, had an injury on her back and she was out of work for a while and I didn't want to be on welfare. And the shame of going to get what we used to call the cheese and the salami that was in, in, in these cans that used to give out. Um, I, I used to tell my mother, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. And I would bring her money. I said, here, I'll give you money from what I used to be, um, packing groceries. So she thought, um, cause I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to be part of the public assistant, public service system. And you said the, the, you had five siblings. There were six of you? It's five brothers and one sister. And one, Okay, so there were seven of you. No, six. Five brothers with me oh. and one sister, yes. Okay, and then um, uh, where, where did you fall in there in terms of age? I'm the third oldest. You're actually. the third oldest. Yes, so your sister is younger or older? My sister's younger. All right. She was the and, second And oldest. not to implicate your, the rest of your family in this, but are they experiencing similar lifestyles? Unfortunately, Bill, um... Two of my brothers are one of them, you know, still currently um, struggles with addiction. Um, I've tried my best to um, help him. And this is a little bit hard for me, Bill, um, because I love my brother and I had to recognize that his process was his process and I had to come to terms with that. And, you know, and I'm sorry to bring it up and, and I know it's probably emotional, but I think it also demonstrates that. Um, we, we can try and reach out and help people as much as we want to, but if they don't want to help themselves, it's just not going to change. I can and, t- and and that your transformation came not really from without, but within. I, I could tell you, Bill, that you are a hundred percent right, and I'm going to say a phrase that I've been I've, a phrase that I've been using for many many years. You could be the counselor from heaven, but the one thing that you cannot teach anyone. The one thing you cannot teach anyone is desire. And that's the desire to not use no more, to desire to change your life. And the God of my understanding gave me that desire. And that's the reason why I'm here today. And I guess my brother has not had that desire yet. And I've, you know, everybody's recovery is in their own process. Um, and yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, that it has, that's when, that's within. That has to come from within. You can't, you can't give that. Um, but you know, at 13, 14, right, I was selling a lot of cocaine. Um, I, my, the mother of my children came out pregnant at the age of 15. I had my own first apartment at 15 and the mother of my children was 23. And I had my son, who's Victor Jr., who's doing extremely well right now. He's actually the deputy director of operations for one of my company. And, um, but at 15, the drug dealing really took off where it became really big. We, I was selling a lot of drugs throughout the city, the state, um, and nothing that I'm proud about. So it wasn't a time in my life where I wasn't very proud. Um, I know now the damage that, that was done to my community, to, you know, my people, you know, in the country. And, you know, a lot of lives were affected by what I did, but I didn't know no other way, Bill. That was the lifestyle that I knew my whole entire life. Um, and I hope and pray that the things that I've done in the last 28 years have, I've, I've come to forgive myself. And I know that my God has forgiven me, but I continue to do what I do to help society, um, to kind of pay that forward, right? Whatever damage I did, 
those first 25 years of my drug addiction. Um, I hope and pray that these last 28 years with, you know, my community work, my work in substance abuse, my work in HIV and AIDS, my work in homelessness, my work in literacy, um, that that has been enough. And I don't think I will ever stop to the day that I die um, to continue to keep give back to the community and not just in the Bronx, but now I've been able to go around the world to um, give back. You know, I do a lot of mission trips. I've been to Peru. I've been to Haiti. I've been to Dominican Republic. We've gone to we I, I, I've been serving my island, Puerto Rico. Shout out to Puerto Rico for the last two years since the Hurricane Maria. Um, both Bronx Parent Housing Network and myself personally has made a personal commitment to Puerto Rico to help them lift up to the day that we finish. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, you, you know, you're, you, you're throwing out these years and these dates and these timelines, um, and, and we're, you know, we're missing this gap from, you know, when you first became a father at around 15, and then obviously when, you know, change occurred, real, real distinct change occurred, uh, at 25, that's 10 years. And I got a funny feeling the story doesn't get better in those 10 years. <laughs> no, it doesn't, Bill. And actually, it wasn't um, 10 years. It was actually 15 years because, you know, at 15, when the drug dealing really took off, it wasn't until I was, I didn't start using drugs heavily to become a full-flown addict till about the age um, 19, 20, where crack cocaine really introduce itself to my life. And I believe that, and, and this is my personal and professional view, um, that crack cocaine is the most devastating drug that has come to the United States of America. I believe that crack cocaine has devastated and diminished more of the family fabric than any drug, including heroin and alcohol. And I know that they say that alcohol kills more people than any other drug, and I understand that. But the devastation, Bill, that crack did, I seen, Bill, I'm not lying to you. I seen women coming to crack houses selling their babies. You know, um, I remember myself taking my coat in pure winter, pure winter, selling my coat. I mean, you know, the degradation, the isolation, um, not caring about myself, about my dignity. I was, I've always been a proud Puerto Rican and in how I carry myself. And my mother raised me, you know, to be a strong individual. And I just allowed myself to, de you know, degradate to almost nothing, to almost animalistic level, Bill. Um, from the age of 19 to the age of 29, I dragged myself through the ground, like through mud. I mean, I was, I was below the dirt, right, in the way that I was living um, from the age really of 20, from really like from 1984, that's when the crack epidemic really blew up. And I tell you, Bill, that I'm going to share this with your audience. Um, as a crack user, I smoked crack cocaine from the age of 19 to the age of 30, right? And um, those 11 years were the most degrading time in my whole entire life. I remember when I was kidnapped and held for ransom to some of the drug dealers came and paid ransom to that kidnapper so that they wouldn't kill me. Um, you know, um, on that same block, right? I was, I had this large amount of cocaine and one of my old friends, um, came and put a Uzi to the back of my head, right? And said that I'm going to kill you and rob me. What is happening with the mother of your children at this point? What's happening with your children at this point? You, you know, Bill, I, where I, are you living? What, what, I mean, what's going on, uh, in, in the world of people that are connected to you while you're experiencing all these, you things? know, you know, my children, my especially my son, Bill, um, he went from having a father who was very wealthy, right? Because I sold a lot of drugs and had a lot of prestige, right? To then being the son of a crack user. And Bill, there's nothing more degrading 
for a child. And, you know, kids could be mean, right? So my son is going to the school on the block where I'm using drugs at. So, you know, kids are telling him, ah, your father's a crackhead. I mean, kids are really mean these days, though, especially, you know, even till today. Right, but they were speaking the truth. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean they didn't hurt. You know, my son was devastated, you know, because um, here his father was very respectful. And now as a from a drug dealer to a well, drug wasn't user. he observing this? Like, yes, he did. He's seen all of this. So, but he also experienced the the having everything to having nothing. Because as a drug dealer, you're giving your children everything. At least I thought it was. You were giving them monetarily, but you weren't giving them no love. Right, and we both know that money doesn't solve problems. Absolutely. Uh, actually, sometimes it creates them, and it's certainly if it comes from activities that really are illegal, and you know, it's 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 not good at all. Um, now at this point. You're not wealthy anymore, right? No, I'm not, Bill. I've lo- I lost everything, and I, I owned the building. I owned the cab service. Before I was 19 years old, I owned the, one of the first cab services in, 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 in the Bronx. It was called Victor's Express. Um, we had, I lost around 20 cars. You know, um, we, we, you know we were pretty wealthy, um, and everything went because um, as a crack user— you no longer were selling your drugs. You're now using them. So you actually had a building and you had a cab service that yeah. where you were actually building wealth legitimately. Yes. And and at that point, you could have said, you know what? This world is not for me anymore. I'm going to stop dealing drugs uh, and, um, and I'm going to operate these legitimate businesses and I'm not going to be a drug dealer. And maybe I'm even going to try and help people not take the path that I took and look at things from a legitimate business point of view, but you don't do choose to do that. Why don't you choose to do that? Bill, I'm going to be very candid with you. Um, I believe that there was a bigger purpose. Once I made that choice to go down that path of destruction, I believe that the God of my understanding had a plan for me to be where I am today, and that if he would have intervened then, I wouldn't have seen the glory because I'm that money and all those business that I had were gotten through illegitimate gains. And my belief, Bill, my belief is that my God could not allow me to sustain that lifestyle with those gains gotten that way. Right. Because they came from a place that they really should not have come from. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so you had to experience complete destitution. Absolutely, Bill. I think that it was God's purpose, you know, and th- and here, Bill, you know, I'm talking about a young man, 25, 20, 27 years old, you know, with all this money and all this wealth and then becoming destitute, becoming homeless. Um, and Bill, and I did all of this without no education. I was illiterate. So when did you when did you leave school? How old were you when you left school? I was 13 years old when I left school. So you were 13 years old when you left school, which In means that you seventh didn't, grade. So you. So, so you didn't complete. So seven, eight, nine, ten. So you, you, I mean, you weren't even, I mean, that's like junior high, but you said you went to high school. I went to Stevenson high school, right? I graduated in nine, I graduated in 1973 from IS 174 and went to Stevenson, right? But then if you go back and look at the records for Stevenson high school for 1974, you might have two, two days of admission and never went back to school. Never went back to school. Never went back to school. Right. But I, and I tell you the other thing, Bill, um, school back then wasn't what I what it is today. I was skipped all those grades. There was no education given to me. I had when I came home from prison in 1990, I had a third grade reading level. So prison. Prison. So you're a crackhead. You've lost all your uh, your, your illegitimate and legitimate wealth. And. Well, no, nothing legitimate. Bill. Right, there, there right. Was, if well, you, if, well, if you well look the at, legitimate wealth that came from the illegitimate yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah, income, yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, and and now and you know now what is the next chapter? I mean, so, what, what, where where does it get lower than ever? And you find yourself homeless, homeless in prison, formerly addicted to crack cocaine, illiterate, and and no hope. No hope. I was. Really, and where's your family at this point? Um, my my children are living with their mother, um, who at the time, um, also had a substance abuse problem. 
And how long? So why did you go to prison? I mean, you I, obviously got arrested for something. I went to prison for the um, possession and illegal sale of controlled substance. And how how long were you in prison? Um, I didn't do much time in jail. I went um, first time I had got I did four months and I have a five year probation. And then I violated my parole. And then I went upstate um, to Riverview Correctional Facility for a year. So about a year and a half. And I have to tell you, Bill, that believe it or not, that um, Riverview Correctional Facility was the beginning of the journey, although it didn't start fully there. Um, I have to tell you that, um, and I don't know where he's at. I don't know where Officer Booker is, um, who was the correction officer from the 11 to 7 tour. Um, but wherever he's at, I hope there's an angel around him and his wife because that man saved my life. How did he save your life? Bill, when I was in Riverview Correctional Facility, um, the mother of my children called me and told me that I would no longer see my children because she found out that some other girls were coming up to see me in prison, which is what prisoners do. They have all their old girlfriends come to see them. And I was devastated and I wanted to attempt, I tried to attempt to commit suicide. Um, and Officer Booker, um, I don't know how he knew, but um, he called me over to his cubicle at, at, 11, at around 12 o'clock at night, talked to me. Um, told me that the next day he would take me to his wife, who was a a um, counselor, and um, she made it so that I would be able to speak to my daughter and my son at least at least once or twice a week. She would take me to the chapel, and I don't. I've and, I, and Booker, I've tried to find this couple for many many years and have not been able to. So if your listeners are out there and anyone knows. Officer Booker, who was a correction officer at Riverview Correctional Facility in 1989. Please tell him that Victor Rivera is looking for him. Do you remember his wife's name? I think it was Susan, but I'm not sure. But it was Mr. and Mrs. Booker. She was the counselor at Riverview Correctional Facility, and he was a correction officer. And let me say this, Bill. I want to make this very clear to your audience. That the color of your skin is nothing Right. It is about the content of your creed. This was a white officer who that it because there's a lot of institutional racism. Right. But I have to tell you that I, I've never looked at the color of a man's skin. Right. Why? Because I've had interactions through God's grace. Right. With every race that there is and have found good and bad in all. Right. Because when you go to prison, usually, you know, you black stay with black, Puerto Rican stay with Puerto Rican, you know, all that segment stuff. And this gentleman, I don't know, I felt like a son. This was a white correction officer that I felt like a son to that man, you know, and his wife treated me so good. And for months, for months, my whole bit there, this man would come and get me at 11 o'clock at my bed, bring me next to his cubicle and make sure that I was okay, Bill. So your interaction with him um, and him embracing you, his wife embracing you and helping you, it seems to me like at that point right there, you experienced an internal sense of hope that up to that point in your life, you had not experienced. I would say yes, Bill. And I think, Bill, it was the first time that I had experienced love, real genuine love from a man. Right. With nothing, with nothing wanted in return. With nothing wanted in return, real genuine love and caring, you know. Um, and I guess it's why even in my college years, um, you know, a lot of my classmates was, would tell me, ah, you're colorblind. I'm because like, I, I just Bill, I just don't believe in the color of a man's skin. I believe in the contents and the creed of his character. Well, we're all human beings. Absolutely. But Bill, but you know, Bill, Bill, let's be real. Right. Bill. No, I mean, the reality of it is that is that people don't see it that way. Bill, but we're all human beings. Yes, absolutely, Bill. But you know, and I know that even today, Bill, you know, we, Bill, I, I, I'll tell you, I was just at my, in my country, I was in my island, and I seen the difference between light-skinned Puerto Ricans and dark Puerto Ricans, Bill, in my own island. So to say that there's no racism, we will be, you know, not really living in, in reality. And then you have classism, economicism, you know, there's different, you know, institute, whatever. You know, that's not really important. What I, the point that I want to bring is that there's good 
in every single human being on this earth. But it's also bad. Yeah. And that's true. a fact. It's true. How long after this interaction with Officer Booker mm-hmm. and his wife, Susan, mm-hmm. were you released from prison? Um, I met Officer Booker in October of 89. I was released. No, I met him around around September of 89. That's when I got violated. I, I was released February 22nd, 1990, right? And I remember that last night that Officer Booker told me, he says, Victor, you have to make a choice now. You're going to come to a point where you're going to come. And I always remember this, Bill. He told me you're going to come to a point where you're going to come to a crossroad. And you have to do one thing. And I was like, why? So, Bill, I thought he was going to give me some revelation. He says, got to make a choice. (laughs) I said, what? I said, that's it, Officer Booker? He says, big boy stuff. You got to make a choice. What do you want to do? Right. And choice. And what I like to say about choice is that when you choose one thing, you have to unchoose something else. And, And that's very, very real. And I think that a lot of times people think, well, I can choose this partly, and I can choose that partly, but no, there are certain things in life that when you make a choice to go in a specific direction, you leave that other choice, that other path, that other direction completely behind. You burn the bridge and you must move forward from there and just relinquish any attachment to that whatsoever. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to fully flourish in this new choice that you made. You're not going to be able to carry discipline and accountability into that. Well, Bill, you you know, you led... Right into the segment, right, of the beginning of the transformation. The one thing that, the one thing, Bill, when you walk and when you start the life of recovery that I started September 1st, 1990, when you make that choice, you're 100% right. So you told me you got out of prison in February. You didn't make the choice for recovery until September 1990. So did you actually fall backwards a little bit after you got out of prison? Yes, I did. I fell back from April to September from April 4th to September 1st. So September 1st, 1990 was the demarcation point. Absolutely. For Victor Rivera as he is today and the other side of the fence, Victor Rivera as he was. Yes it is. Wow. And, and I also want you to know Bill that September 1st is my son's birthday. Victor Jr was born September 1st, 1976. And I want to tell you that the last day that I consumed any kind of illegal narcotics was September 1st, 1990 at 1.34 in the afternoon in the window of a crack house. And I want to tell you that I... On your son's birthday. On my son's birthday. I had smoke cracked all weekend. And my son came to the window, to to the floor, to the lobby, right? Called my name. I looked at the window and my son asked me for a quarter. And I looked at him and I'm looking in my pocket and I know I had smoke cracked all weekend and I had no money. And he looked at me and he said one word again. Wow. Dad again. Wow. With a disgust in his face that I had never seen before. And praise God, I've not ever seen again. He was 14 years old at the time. My son is 42 years old today. Wow. I've been clean now 28 years, two months and one day. Not that you're counting. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a wonderful journey these last 28 years. Right. Well, I mean, the listeners, you know, they, they had a little, they ha- they've gotten a little introduction into where you are today. Mm-hmm. They've heard about college. They, they've heard about, you know, uh, a, a not-for-profit organization that focuses on stamping out homelessness and hopelessness. They heard from, you know, Richard, uh, who's the uh, chief operating officer of your organization, and Juan, uh, who's of council. So it's it's now a good time to get to the other side of the story? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this is the fun part, right? But the, the journey part, this is the part that you talked about, that once you make that choice and you say yes to this choice, you have to say no to the other choice. Right. And I think right? everyone really needs to understand that, okay? Right. No, and that's the impactful aspect of what we're talking about mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. that you know, while, we're, while I'm excited to be here with you, and I'm sure you're excited to tell your story, the purpose is not for you and I to talk to each other. The Absolutely. purpose for, The purpose is 
is for at least one person, if mm. just one person mm. listens to this and makes that same choice, mm-hmm. then we will have done our job, haven't we? And and I and I hope that it goes way beyond that. I hope it's a wave mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. that listen to this and make the choice, or people that are dealing with friends or family that are experiencing this and somehow say it's possible. This is where the hope comes from, and I want to tell you this hope, right, Bill? Because I want you to know that some of the people that are listening to this podcast right now. I assure you, Bill, are struggling with some form of addiction or another. Um, Addiction is not just about drugs, Bill. You could be addicted to gambling. You could be addicted to pornography. All those things that people feel are so sociably acceptable, right, behind a closet. It's not just about drugs, Bill. You could be addicted to cutting yourself. We have a lot of people who are successful, right, who still cut themselves. I want you to know, Bill, that one of the customers that I had when I was selling drugs, right, was famous, that I won't mention no names, right, that used to come and buy thousands and thousands and thousands of of crack cocaine off of me, right? This was an educated man with all kinds of masses, but yet had an addiction, So I don't want you to think that the only people that have addictions are little Puerto Rican boys from 138th Street and Brook Avenue. There's a lot of people, all right, from the suburbs, right? A lot of wealthy children, a lot of wealthy people in in high-class midtown Manhattan offices doing a lot of drugs right now and cannot find a way. And hopefully, hopefully listening to this podcast, right, might be a hope. It might be a hope for someone who is who is listening to this podcast that has a family member who is just coming out of prison. Well, February 22nd, 1990, when I walked out of Riverview Correctional Facility, right, I was 30 years old. I had an eighth grade education and I had a third grade reading level because I graduated from seventh grade to eighth grade when I went to Stevenson High School. But I had a third grade reading level and I never went back to school. Never went back to school until 1995 that I went in and walked into Metropolitan College of New York City and sat down and took this entrance exam and failed miserably. For the next two years, every month, I went back to that school and took that entrance exam. It got to the point where I walked in and they said, oh, there goes Victor. He's going to go take the entrance exam, right? <laughs> and, I, and, Bill, and I remember the day that I passed that entrance exam. Oh my God, Bill! What day was that? That was that was nineteen ninety seven, January fifth. Let me tell you, but Bill, let me let me go back a little bit, right? I walked out of Riverview Correctional Facility, um, February twenty second, nineteen ninety. I entered recovery September first, nineteen ninety. I I I struggled my first year or two, right? Not struggle with addiction, right? Because recovery has been very good for me from the beginning, right? I have to tell you that, um. You know, it was a hard journey because I, I was I was not educated, so I had difficulty reading. You know the the steps and the traditions and some some other books, and I don't want to break any traditions to the organization that I belong to. So I'm, you know, I'm not part of public information, right? And but listen, people know me already. I'm always getting in trouble, right? I belong to a fellowship called Narcotics Anonymous, right? And it saved my life 28 years ago. And um, I've been on this journey ever since, right? And it is the reason why I am who I am today and that I am where I am, right? But I had an eighth grade education and a third grade reading level, September 1st, 1990, when I walked into this program. And in 1997, when I walked, when I, when I got admitted into Metropolitan College of New York City, I had no education. I had no GED. I was able to go in there, get my credit, get 24 credits, get a GED. I was able to get an associate's degree. I was able to go back and get a bachelor's degree. I was able to go back and get a master's degree in public administration. And I just began to look at my application for my DPA at NYU. DPA? Uh, Doctorate in public administration. Dr. Victor Rivera. Dr. Victor Rivera. (laughs) The ex-homeless, the ex felon, the ex-drug addict, the ex-illiterate person with the grace of God, because I have to tell you, Bill, 
And I want my listeners to listen very carefully because I could not leave this podcast without saying this. September 1st, 1990, at 1.34 in the afternoon, I stood in the window of a crack house and I challenged the God of my understanding, who I called Jesus Christ, and I told him that I could not stop getting high and that if he was the God that my mother said that he was, that he would take away my desire to ever get high again until today of today, he's kept that promise with me. I am a full-fledged Christian. I love God. I would not be nowhere without him. And he was my first source of strength. And then he introduced me to the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous who has supported me these last 28 years, three months and one day, not two months, three months and one day, sir. It's been a wonderful journey. Um, Bronx Parent Housing Network um, was a organization that I founded with two other founding members. We founded Bronx Parent Housing Network in 2001. It was myself and two other single parents who were working in the Bronx and couldn't find no affordable housing. They're called, there goes the name of the, of the, of the organization, Bronx Parent Housing Network. And so you founded it in 2001. In 2001. Right. Here we are 17 years later in 2018. Yes. What, what, uh, what month in 2001? January 2nd. We got incorporated January 2nd. 2001 right so so this so in a month because we're recording this at the beginning of december uh-huh. of 2018 mm-hmm. in a month you're going to be officially 18 years old absolutely wow absolutely but you know what's funny bill I, I i worked for a wonderful organization and i want to make sure that i name it i my first my very first job bill was at banana kelly community improvement association right is a nonprofit that still exists today and that organization wrapped his arms around me like if I was a baby. I was given my first job. I was given my first apartment. It nourished me. Um, the people from that organization forced me to go to school, told me that I could be someone that I, that I didn't know I could be. It is because of that organization and God that used that organization, right? Professionally, that was my stomping ground. It was God. It's my foundation, and I want to be real. Clear and when about was that. that? What year was that? That was in 1992. That was November 12th. I'm very good with dates. You are November November 12th, 1992. I went to Banana Kelly Community Improvement on 161st Street and Prospect, and got my very first um, apartment. And then I told him, I need a job. I don't. I don't want to. I was pushing racks downtown in the freezing cold, and um, someone gave me a job making $8,000 a year. (laughs) And, um, but I was so happy to have that job, Bill, because I didn't have, because Bill, when I was in jail, I was working for a dollar, a dollar 27 a week. Oh, wow. So $8,000 a year was like a yeah, gold mine that was for a me. Big, that was a big yeah. raise. Yes, yeah. it, yes, it was, Bill. That was a big it raise. Was, that was a big raise. It's been a good journey, Bill. I, I have to tell you, um, God has been really good to me. Um, from 2001, right, to 2004, right? And I'm sorry I'm jumping around. That's okay. Um, from 2001 to 2004... Bronx Parent Housing Network, you know, it was just a piece of paper and we had one, one we had a, a small contract with people with developmental disabilities. And I had stopped, you know, I wasn't really the CEO. I I, I was just working in the organization because I was still working at Banana Kelly. Um, and something happened that I stopped, right? I, 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 had, I had started focusing just on my job and on my career. I wanted to study. I was going to literacy classes. And in 2005, um, my other founder, Louis Coriano, who I love, Louis, I love you wherever you at, my brother, and you too, Sylvia. They called me and asked me to take over as CEO. So I've actually been the CEO of Bronx Parent Housing Network since April 25th, 2005. So it'll be 13. 13- 13 years uh, to mm-hmm. 14 years uh, coming up this April 2019. That's correct. That's correct. Um, and, and your co-founders are no longer with the organization? No, they're not. Um, but I love them very much, and I want them to know that I've kept up the mission of keeping this organization grassroots, which is a promise that we have made to each other, and that will never change as long as I am CEO. So you are uh, essentially serving the community of people and families, individuals that either have already gone down the road or are currently going down the road that you went down. 
I mean, talk about full circle. Bill, one of the reasons why I believe that God has me here, right, is twofold. Number one, because I experienced something, right, that now I can tell people actually, you know, I went through this and this is how I got out. It's one of the reasons that I think that my funders should listen to me a little more because I know exactly what it is that people need to do in order to come out on the other side. So are there any uh, success stories you want to tell us about some of the people that have used your services? Oh, let me tell you something. There's a young lady, and I won't mention her name, but there was a young lady that um, came out of jail, was in a shelter, went to one of my facilities, right? She is now in her own apartment, works for an, an organization. Another story, and his I could use because he gave me permission, Matt was one of my first clients. I was one of the first people who to operate a federal contract called HOPWA, Housing for People with AIDS. It's called HOPWA. And it was a demonstration project that they gave Banana Kelly in 1995 um, to service chronically homeless drug addicts who were HIV positive. And Bill, this guy came to our facility with a 5 million viral load. And that means they had a lot of HIV virus in their body. They had zero T-cell counts. And the T-cell counts is what fights off viruses from your body so that you don't get sick. So he was full-blown, ready to die. He walks in. He tells me, listen, don't start talking to me no crap about no program. Give me an apartment. Let me die. That's all I want to do. Leave me alone. And he was doing $200 a day of heroin, and he was on about 150 milligrams of methadone. So I started talking to him, and he had came out of prison, and he was homeless. So the identification, right, was so mutual with me. Um, the gentleman right now, right, um, has a master's degree in social work, and is one of the major directors at Volunteers of America serving HIV-positive clients in a congregate facility. Wow. Yes, sir. Wow. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, so actually, you know, it's funny because uh, Bronx Parents Housing Network, um, I guess officially is a not-for-profit. You know what? It seems to me like it's extremely profitable in, in a human way. Amen. Amen, Bill. And Bill, I want to say one other thing. Um, one, of the, one of the blessings that I have had as the CEO of this organization is that I, I um, collaborate a lot with prison ministries, right, um, with churches that go into jail. And one of the jails that I love to go to a lot is um, Rikers Island, um, especially with young men, um, 17, 18. And when they hear my story, right, they identify. Because if you go in there, Bill, it won't be the same. When the pastor goes in there, it's not the same. But when I go in there and I tell them, yo, you know, I was in that cell that you're in right now. Yo, I was in that dorm. Yo, I ate in that mess hall. And they say, and you're the CEO now of a what? Of an $81 million company and you were a drug addict? You were in jail? But how'd you get a job? You got felonies. I said, yes, I work for the New York State Senate. Um, I, I, it, it, incredible. So the, the, the identification bill gives them a sense of hope, right? Cause, um, new possibilities arrive and new dreams are born when we come into this role called recovery and life. Yeah. Well, all I have to say, Victor, is that was much more of an amazing story than I even realized it was going to be, you know, we're a little over, uh, time right now, so we have to finish up. Yeah, but I, I, uh, we could go on for hours, I'm sure. And I, I want to give you the stage one more time at the end of, you know, today's episode. And you know, what would you like to leave our listeners with? I'm grateful. I'm humbled for the life that I have today. I feel that it has been grace and unmerited favor from the God that I serve. I believe that I've been chosen by him to do the work that I am doing, Bill. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that he's given me the opportunity to rest, to do restitution to my community, to, to this nation, to this world. I've touched people around the world, around the country, um, with the life and the work that I've done. Um, but most importantly, what I want to tell people is that there is hope. And you have to have love and compassion for people and not judgment. And last thing, there are no hopeless people. There's only hope when you believe and you give someone love and an opportunity. 
Thank you so much, Bill. It's been an honor to sit here with you. Victor, beautiful message. Amazing story. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey there, everyone. I know that that was definitely a little bit of a switch up from what we normally talk about on Realty Speak, but I thought it was an important story, especially you know at this time of year. Uh, this was recorded uh, in December, actually on December 1st. 2018, and you're hearing it in January, and I I hope it inspires you in some way to see people differently and see people as humans, just like yourself, and maybe inspires you to help in some way where somebody really needs help. So thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic. That's my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And please share our show, especially this episode with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And with that, just like to say, I'm always accessible and easy to reach at BillWidener.com. All my contact information is there. And we'll see you next time. Until then, 